0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Credo. I am really excited to be joined today by Father Gregory Pine. Uh, If you've seen any or listened to any episodes of Pines with Aquinas, Father Gregory is probably familiar to you. You also may have read one of his books. He's the author of Credo, an RCIA program. He's the author of Marian Consecration with Aquinas. uh, And he contributes to the podcast, God's Blending, and as I mentioned, Pines with Aquinas. And as of today, a guest on Credo. Uh, the crowning achievement of his many podcast achievements. I might say. Uh, he's a, he's currently assigned as a doctoral student at the University of Freiburg in Switzerland. I've been a huge fan of Father Gregory ever since I first heard him on Pines with Aquinas, I think in the very first episode in which he appeared there, because uh, I've been a Pints fan for many years. So, Father Gregory, welcome to Creedle. Really happy
1: to have you. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Delighted to be here. Absolutely. Well, uh, you're here
0: because... I've wanted to ask you to come on for a long time but I, I particularly had the uh the occasion to invite you on to talk about your recent book Prudence Choose Confidently Live Boldly this was just released by OSB Press. I've had the distinct pleasure of reading it through and getting a much firmer understanding in my own mind of what prudence is. Uh, I think it's a really it's a really easy read 166 pages total start to finish. Uh very digestible broken up in roughly eight chapters I think it is. Um, uh, yeah, eight chapters, um, very digestible, uh, a really good, uh, introduction to sort of the philosophy of the virtues and in particular prudence. But let me ask you this father, Gregory, why did you write a book on prudence? Now you're in the middle of your doctoral dissertation, uh, you're two years in as a doctoral student and you just decided, Hey, I should just write a book on prudence while I'm at it. Well, I, while I've got the free time on my hands.
1: Yeah, I, I suppose it was foolish. And there were points during the process where I was like, sweet Christmas, Gregory, what have you done to yourself? Um, but the proximate cause was that the editor at OSV hit, uh, psh, you know, called me and said, Hey, would you write a book on prudence? And I said, yes, because my kind of go-to is say yes, unless you can't say yes. <laughs> um, which isn't the most prudent way by which to organize a life, but it typically works out, or at least it has worked out, except when I'm curled up in a ball on the floor crying because of overcommitment. But I don't admit to that in public except when I do. Um, so, uh, yeah. So she asked if I would write it, but like the backstory was I, I kept finding myself talking about prudence with great vehemence and conviction because I had been reading St. Thomas on prudence for a couple of classes and then for, well, whatever, uh, some other stuff besides. And I was like, dang, this is so awesome. Um, and I was, especially, I was especially taken by the fact that we live in an age where people feel as if life is just happening to them and prudence is a virtue which you know emboldens and empowers us to live as protagonists uh, to live as genuine agents in the world so i saw a need and i thought that this might help address the need i certainly hope it will uh
0: and when you say that we live in an age in which life is just sort of happening to us that rings true especially now as i was reading the book I was struck by uh, the many times in which you insisted that prudence is something that allows us to choose confidently, to live boldly, uh, and maybe most importantly, something that allows us to be truly free. Uh, and I was thinking about, um, you know, you you, you summarize uh, Aristotle's uh, view of sort of what what virtue is. Um, and you summarize the traditional view of freedom sort of in light of that, the freedom is that which allows us to, to be good and pursue goodness. Uh, and I think about how so so frequently today, I just feel like I can't even choose goodness. I'm sort of, um, always drawn to, to a screen, to react to something in the moment, to be, uh, to be pulled from a life of prayer. Uh, and I think that recovering a sense of prudence is a really important first step in, in, in choosing confidently and living boldly and trying to live the good life as we are meant to do.
1: Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And um, it's funny you identified, you know, like appealing to a screen. I think there, yeah, I don't know exactly what it is, but there there's something about life now or life in the last 10 years or even life in life in the last five years, which feels peculiarly difficult because I think technology is outpacing our growth in the virtues necessary for incorporating that technology into a healthy human life. Mm. I'm like reading, like his bedtime reading right now, a little book called The Tech-Wise Family. I'm um, familiar with Andy, Andy Crouch, I think, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. Yep. Um, just like simple kind of wisdom for family life as uh, as it concerns keeping screens from dominating your existence. And, uh, you know, just like, it's very simple, very practical, and I've also found it to be nice just in terms of how, like the way in which I interact with technology. But because of my work, I sit in front of a computer screen for many, many hours a day, Um, and I find myself beginning to envision my life after a pattern of like maximization and optimization, uh, because I'm constantly, you know, like conjoined to an instrument, the instrument, which is potentially all things, whether those be utility or entertainment or, you know, other things beyond. I like, I begin to assume the shape and the character of the instrument itself. Like I begin to treat myself as if I were what i I, i'm like a soul dragging around a body it seems and just kind of tossing that nearly bloodied and beaten corpse at whatever task is next before me and i'm just like bruv what are you doing you know like where's the human culture in this um so yeah so i've begun to think about that more or at least more deliberately well let's back up a little
0: bit i gave uh i gave a, a very brief bio of who you are father gregory but um how did you come to be sitting here uh you know, well, not not here where I am, but here where you are in the University of Freiburg, uh, in uh, in the white habit of the Dominicans as a Dominican priest uh, pursuing the life of a religious. Uh, how is it that you ended up where you are, and not, for example, where I am situationally uh, as the you know father of a, a large young family and a and a growing family? Uh, how did you discern your vocation and end up where you are?
1: Yeah, I. Um, short answer is, I think I know, um, and. I'm going to try to recount that truthfully. It's funny how the story changes as you go along, because insofar as we're human beings, we are both living a story and telling a story, and hopefully we're getting better at telling the story. Uh, so we get more and more resources with each passing day for interpreting what has in fact happened in our lives. And I hope not to falsify it, although I do do hope to kind of beautify it. Um, but like also, you know, in Aristotelian accounts, so you can give 16 causes for the same thing because- Yeah, exactly. It's awesome. And it's not just like interval parts. It's like, they're all comprehensive. Um, so why? Well, I mean like God, right? So God and his grace, his infinite mercy, my parents who are awesome, my family. Uh, like I grew up in a family context where it was just kind of normal uh, to think about religious life. Certainly it was a case for one of my older sisters one of my other older sisters, actually sent her on a vocation retreat as a birthday gift, which I realized wow. subsequently was not the move. Um, but you figure these things out afterwards. She was super gracious about it. She went, she enjoyed her time. Um, she's married, she has four children. Um, so yeah, so those would be contributing factors. Proximate things were uh, desires of the heart. Okay. So my general theory is that as you live your life, presumably you're, you're seeking to live your life well, you know, you're, going to, you're making good use of the sacraments, you have a life of prayer, you've introduced a little bit of penance into your life, you've got good Christian friendships in which you're accountable and vulnerable, um, you're studying the faith, you're of service to the material poor, etc., Uh, I think you can rely upon the Lord to grow you in grace and virtue. And as he does so, your desires are healed and grown. And then you come to a better appreciation of what they entail. And I think it's good to do so because God created you to a purpose and he redeems you along the trajectory according to what you're created. So it's not like God gives you desires and then, you know, he infuses grace and then scraps them and gives you holy other desires, which is the way that a lot of people describe their vocation, you know, which is crazy, but whatever. Um, So I had certain desires. And um, I think that when I recognized... Uh, my vocation was when those kind of desires coalesced in a concrete form. So, in the, you know, I, I got pumped about becoming a Dominican priest when I was 19 years old. And in the years leading up to that, I was confident in the fact that I wanted to be holy to the Lord's. And I was kind of, yeah, I was super focused on that in a kind of obsessive way. Um, and I wanted to be perfect, whatever that meant for the life of charity. I was like, let's do it, even though I'm a brat. Um, and I wanted to do great things worthy of great honors because they were great, which is to say, I wanted to be about a magnanimous work. And I just didn't know what that looked like. I just, mm-hmm. you know, I think everyone uh, inclines first to marriage insofar as it's the primordial vocation of all mankind. No priesthood in the garden, no religious life in the garden. There is yeah. one way by which grace is communicated to subsequent generations, to the context of family life. But every once in a while... Yeah, there's like things that come from the periphery and change your mind as to what might be for you and it was for me in that um so when i encountered concretely the witness of saint thomas aquinas i was like holy smokes this is it right this is the way in which the desires of my heart come together or coalesce i want to love the lord the way that saint thomas loves the lord and there were small steps that led to that recognition but it was basically it was basically that Wow. That's great. And what, what about, um,
0: your, your identification? I mean, it sounds like you love St. You'd love St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, from, from an early age, but what about choosing the Dominican order, uh, compared to um, to another religious order or just being a parish priest?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, insofar as St. Dominic was St. Wow. St. Thomas was a Dominican. That was it for me. I never had a thought about like priesthood separate from religious life, nor did I really ever think about priesthood or religious life in the abstract. It was like the way a little brother idolizes his brother who's like seven years old and tries to tag along with him and play with his friends and stuff like that. I was just like, dude, where St. Thomas is, I want to be there. I hadn't yet actually met a living, breathing Dominican, so I was hoping that they, one, still existed, and two, were, like, were accepting applications slash weren't entirely, <laughs> you know, ruined by, um, yeah, things in the 20th century. And uh, I came to discover that, that all of those things obtained. So that was basically it. Yeah.
0: Great. I love it. Well, let's, uh, let's turn to the, uh, turn to your book here, Prudence. The first chapter is, am I happy? And by the way, all the chapters start with, am I something? So chapter one, am I happy? And then am I able? Am I virtuous? Am I prudent? Am I whole? Am I bold? Am I certain? Am I confident? But the first one is, am I happy? And, um, there are some, there are some, uh, similarities, I think between this first chapter and a sort of self help book that you might find on the the front, you know, bargain bargain uh, pyramid of a Barnes and Noble. Yeah. Uh, before we hit the record button, Father Gregory, I was sharing with you that um, what I liked about the first chapter, Am I Happy is that you're you're exhorting the reader to embrace your best life now. And I drew a, a, a cheeky uh, comparison to Joel Osteen's book your best life now. And Joel Osteen is a, for listeners who don't know, Joel Osteen is a mega church pastor in Houston who, whose theology bears little resemblance to Christianity. <laughs> he preaches that uh, you know God actually wants you to be uh, healthy and wealthy. That is his plan for you. Anything less than complete wealth and health is uh, is is due in part to your unfaithfulness to God. Uh, so you're certainly not saying that, Father Gregory. But what you are saying is a is a Christian version of this, which is uh, you can't wait for later to choose, to to pursue the life that God is calling you to pursue. Uh, I also think here of uh, the office, uh, because you, you say in in your chapter here that you're, as you're going through college or your seminary formation, uh, you you found yourself trying to condense classes, trying to sort of get through the experience. And you were talking with a mentor and saying, how, how do you recommend that I arrange these classes so that I can validate the next requirement or meet the next requirement and then sort of graduate early. And his response to you was, why? Why do you wanna do that? And you said, well, because I wanna get on with being a priest and serving God. And he said, don't you think you're serving God right now in this moment? And that was a light bulb moment for you because you realized, yes, every moment of your life, you're called to serve God. Every moment of your life, you find yourself in a place where you can be serving God. And so you should never be trying to sort of get to the next thing because um, in that sense, there is no next thing. The current thing is always the thing in which you're serving God. Uh, And I I, that was a really good point that struck, struck a chord with me because I often also find myself just looking to the next thing. Like what's, what's next on the agenda? What's next on the horizon? I've got to get through this thing because this is, this next thing is definitely the thing that God has planned for me. I'm pretty confident of it. And I neglect to live in the moment in that sense. But there's this uh, line in the office, I think it's the very last line of the show actually, where Andy Bernard is um, sort of uh, encapsulating the show. And he says, I wish there was, I think it says, I wish there was a way of knowing that you were in the good old days before you actually leave the good old days. And uh, and I think that's that's true for the Christian life because it's terrible to get somewhere and look back and realize that you were not giving God your all where you were. It was the good old days and you didn't realize it. But but uh, tell me more about this first chapter, am I happy? Or if you wanna to respond to something I, I just said, go for it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that at the end of the day, To use a word that I don't necessarily know whether I included in that chapter itself, I think that we want to cultivate a sense of fit or we want to discover a sense of fit. I think that, um, oftentimes when we describe happiness, we describe it in an emotional way or in a kind of phenomenological way, but truth be told, like happiness is very hard to pin down. And if we're overly worried about pinning it down, then it kind of slips from between our, or through our fingers. Whereas I think that we can cultivate a sense that I was born for this. You see a lot of um, young women wearing the shirt, which quotes from St. Joan of Arc saying something to the effect of like, "I was basically, I was born for this. Yep. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to comport ourselves with a kind of swaggering braggadocio like, hu, 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 I'm awesome and this is great. But I think that we can know, regardless of whether times are good or bad, that it is for this that I have come right? What do I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. No, for it was for this hour that I've come. Father, glorify thy name. And I think that, um, yeah, we have small moments throughout the course of the day in which to make that acknowledgement and then to reflect it back to the Lord in terms of praise. So like, for instance, my present assignment, as I've mentioned, is not especially rich on an interpersonal level i have opportunities to do really cool things ministerially but they're rarer than they have been in the past and i suspect that they're rarer than they will be in the future so right now i'm in a kind of what would you say um a trough of apostolic engagement and um yeah i lament that insofar as it's difficult but i don't lament it insofar as it's like what i should reject the present setting, time, place, circumstances of this assignment to what end? You know, because this is the proximate preparation for that subsequent thing. And I've I've heard preaching that has gone dry on account of the fact that it is no longer informed by prayer and study. It ceases to be a real contemplative exercise and instead it becomes a rhetorical flourish and yeah, just a very evident, you know, example of running on fumes. So I want to live and abide. Uh, at the heart of this contemplative vocation. I know that I as a somewhat hyperactive person who doesn't say no with sufficient frequency um, Need, you know this time and I can recognize that even while mm. feeling, you know sad or lonely or anxious That's fine Like I don't have to say if I were a true believing Christian Allah Olstein, I wouldn't feel sad or lonely or anxious, you know like we can address that in a variety of different ways which don't necessarily fall within the bounds of this consideration, but I can know that I fit here. And I think that that is, that's the principle of happiness.
0: That absolutely makes sense. Um, You also mentioned, I think in the very last chapter, maybe it's the second to last, you say something like God wants you to be happy more than you want to be happy. Um, But can you say more about what this, like what this type of happiness looks like? Because I think we often, especially in this day and age, we equate our, or we sort of, we shape our understanding of of the word happiness or the idea of happiness based on a sort of uh, a hedonism, right? That, that yeah, yeah. happiness is sort of based, about, based on pleasurable consumption. So when you say God wants us to be happy more than we ourselves wanna be happy, what exactly do you mean about that? What is that happiness?
1: Yeah, I think the basic idea is, I, so people will draw the distinction by people. I mean, clinical psychologists often draw the distinction between eudaimonic happiness and hedonic happiness, what people will sometimes call meaning happiness and pleasure happiness. And I think that any complete picture of happiness has to hold the two together. It's hard to do that with one comprehensive term insofar as people no longer speak of beatitude or felicity or happiness in a robust sense. So like short of being grammatically obtuse and being like, well, you should mean this when you say this, it's just like, shut up, no one cares. All right, that's how language works, so just deal with it. Yeah. Um, I think that we wanna say that like you choose meaningful things even with the recognition that those meaningful things may cause great suffering, uh, but with the hope that through the choice of these meaningful things, you'll encounter a yet more meaningful life. Well, you'll, you'll be drawn into a yet more meaningful life. Like um, I'm thinking of the movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind where, you know, Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet are involved in this relationship and it's so traumatic that they choose to forget it. But then when they recognize the fact that they're on the threshold of living this relationship again, even though having done it once, they chose to forget it, they still want it. Um, and I remember just watching that movie for all of its quirks and being like, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, because, you know, however you stylize it or however you wax eloquent about the purpose and meaning of suffering, which I think is an exercise wholly to be avoided, there is the simple fact that like human life is for living, right? Human life is for living. In the course of our living of it, we gain certain insights or we, we gain certain appreciation or we, at the end of the day, I mean, like we gain certain relationships, we grow in certain relationships and we wouldn't trade them. Uh, Even with the recognition that they may have caused us great suffering or that they've opened us up to great suffering. Like, yeah, I mean, people make friends and then their friends die. And then it's as if something of them has died. I think C.S. Lewis's description of that in The Four Loves is beautiful. He's talking about three friends, whatever, A, B and C. And uh, when C dies, it's not as if A has more of B and B has more of A on account of the fact that they are no longer you know, having demands placed upon their love by C. No, it's like B loses the part of A that only C drew out and and A loses the part of B that only C drew out. So there's a sense in which like human relationships, they, they grow us, they make us to yeah. flourish. We unfold or we kind of like, we flower in the presence of the other. Um, and yet, you know, like whenever you engage with a mortal thing, you are bound to be disappointed in a certain sense. But I sh- yeah, it's not the point, right? The point isn't to like establish a kind of what SSRI induced equilibrium. Like there's going to be ups and downs. You know, that's not to speak ill of, you know, like medication and its proper use and stuff like yeah, that. I'm just yeah. saying that like we're not trying to just. It's yeah, not a biochemical we- state of state of existence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like human life is just it's just far more. Yeah, it's just crazy, crazy. Yeah. Well, we've talked about this
0: book, Prudence, but we have so far danced around a definition of prudence. So let's back up for a minute and just talk about what prudence is. How how do you best define it?
1: St. Thomas describes it as rectoratio adjabilium, so which is in like shorthand, right reason and things to be done, a right reason of things to be done. And he distinguishes that from like other related powers or other related um, kind of like competencies or excellences of the soul. So it's right reason. Okay. Which means to say that when we're engaging with our environment, we do so in a way that's orderly and that reflects the proper importance of the different factors at play. Um, And then in things to be done. So here he's distinguishing between things to be done and things to be made. So the proper virtue for things to be made is art things to be done it's here it's a matter of agency what we usually identify as like our moral lives though how we understand our moral lives i think is often flawed but that's another conversation for another day so basically it's like you as a as a human agent you as the protagonist of a genuinely human work are informed in your engagement by the virtue of prudence so it's uh it's right reason in in practical affairs which would you can you can also compare that to um You know certain virtues of the speculative reason like knowledge wisdom understanding which those would be right reason and things to be known okay so there's no further use uh for those particular virtues insofar as you don't deploy them in practical exercises whereas with prudence you do because it's about perfecting agency uh got it and i think you're so this is chapter five i
0: think of the the book in which you sort of go into the question of, am I prudent? Sorry, chapter four, am I prudent? And you have this very helpful diagram uh, articulating exactly where prudence sort of enters the fray. I'm holding it up here in front of the camera. So you have have stage one uh, in which the intellect apprehends and the will intends. And stage one concerns the end, that is the the, the goal. Then stage two, uh, in which the intellect judges and the will chooses. And that's where prudence enters the fray. I think sort of, antecedent to the judgment and choice if i have that correct yeah. and then stage three the intellect commands and the will uses and that's the that's what you were saying about the things to be done yeah. and then later in the book uh later just a few a few pages later in that chapter you break you s- further subdivide that stage two into the three acts of prudence um, in which the intellect counsels and the will consents and that's the sort of antecedent part to judgment and choice in which prudence enters the fray. So can you, can you walk me through those stages? Let's start with stage one in which the intellect apprehends and the will intends, what do you mean by those, those words?
1: Yeah, sure. Just in the sense that, um, all right, so we as human beings are surrounded by a whole bunch of different good things. Um, but those good things don't necessarily address themselves to us with the same urgency. Right, so like um, I'm walking down the street here in Freeburg and I'm passing a bunch of different stores, all right? So like one of the first stores that I pass when I leave my house is a lingerie shop, which doesn't really like, you know, like leap out of the otherwise neutral fabric of reality and say, enter. I've never, you'll be surprised to find that I've never entered that store. Uh, (laughs) Next door, there's a second hand shop, which also I don't have much use for clothing. Not to say that I'm a nudist, uh, but it's that's just simply to say that I'm, I'm basically covered. Wow, that was that was polyvalent. Um, and uh, and then there's a tobacco shop, which it does allure me. Um, now, mind you, it's Switzerland, so that means you can afford to buy one thing every six years. But when you do buy that one thing, you rejoice heartily. Are you so, a pipe guy? I am a pipe guy, yeah. Okay, pipe nice. is an economical way by which to deliver the goods. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm walking down this street, uh, the Rue de Perol, and I pass these things, but I don't really notice the first two store. I only notice them every once in a while, based on like changing things in the environment. Maybe they change the mannequins, or like maybe somebody's going in or going out, and then I'll be like, oh, there's a thing. But when it comes to La Tabatiere, I'm like, yeah, dude, that's I got to get back there. They sell these little packets of like five Toscano Anticos, which are these Italian cigars, which Tastes like tree bark, but they're very inexpensive. And you can okay. cut them in half, and never mind. Okay, so um, when I pass by there, sometimes I'm like, "Look at that! That is that is a haven of sweet tobacco consumption." I think I'm gonna bop in. All right, so that's that's me like formulating a, a genuine moral commencement. Okay, so I've like I've apprehended the good of, of you know like consuming tobacco, and then I intend to consume tobacco. All right. So stage one, complete,
0: you've, you've apprehended the good. You will has intended to enter the shop.
1: Exactly. And now I go in there. They also sell whiskey, which I can't, lamentably, I can't drink whiskey. I can't drink hard alcohol because it destroys my guts. Um, so they've got all those things, but those things don't appeal to me. All right. On account of the fact that I can't, or I have sufficiently well-formed memories of the last times that I thought I could, uh, but they have all these tobacco products. Okay. So I, I, I look at my different options. All right. And this is the stage of counsel. And I see that certain options are just beyond the pale. There are things in there that are way too expensive. And then there are things in there that are way too aromatic. So when I smoke something, I don't want it to taste like a box of fruit. I would like for it to taste like a barn fire. um, Preferably one where animals live previous to the fire. Like I want it to be, I want to smoke the earth. Okay. Um, So I'm looking and I'm ruling things out and I'm ruling things in. Uh, And that's consent. when I I rule certain things in. But then I need to refine my choice insofar as I settle upon a particular product, okay? So I have X number of dollars to spend in the course of the month, and uh, I'll pick out one of these items. Usually it's it's like Toscano Anticos because I can get, you know, five cigars for like 17 bucks, which in Switzerland is an absolute steal. Uh, So I go to the guy and I'm like, hey, puis-je avoir une boîte de Toscano Anticos? And he's like, volontiers. Uh, so there I've made the choice. But now I've actually got to see it through, insofar as I could waver at the end. Like I've made the choice. I've made that known to the proprietor, but uh, i I may have failed to bring money or maybe my phone has something wrong with it because I was hiking this past weekend and water got into like the little charge cable thing and now it's choosing to be on the fritz. So I need to, like persevere in my choice. otherwise, it could be potentially derailed. And then that is the stage of. Command and use. So, in you know, in summary, I apprehend the end as a good, and I intend it. Right. So, those are intellectual and volitional engagements, respectively. I enter the store. I rule some things out. I rule some things in. Okay. That's counsel and consent. Among those things, I make a certain judgment and choice as to which course I will pursue, and then I make that known. I, the choice is rendered. Okay. But then, in the in the process of carrying out that choice, I need to make sure that. It, that it, you know, it comes off. It doesn't get derailed in the, in the end, and that's, that's command and use. Now, can
0: you talk a little bit about the difference between conscience and prudence? I know you have a section on that in the book. You describe conscience as sort of an armchair philosopher, and yeah. then prudence is, prudence is action-oriented, so um, prudence sort of entails, I think, having the, the resources to actually, or the wherewithal to carry out the action, but can you say a little bit more about that distinction? Because sometimes I think we confuse the two or just conflate yeah. the two.
1: So I am reading, like I said, TechWise Family by uh, the Crouch family. And um, I have it in my mind that I shouldn't look at my phone first thing in the morning because that's a simulacrum of a morning offering. And instead of worshiping at the altar of the Most High God, I worship at the altar of my technological slavery. But, um, so I'm making a judgment there, a judgment of conscience as to the lyseity or validity or morality of checking my phone first thing in the morning. Okay. And on the basis of that judgment, right? Or in kind of conversation with that judgment, I make certain prudential choices. Like I bought an alarm clock, which I will now hold up here, which- um, Very nice. Which when dinosaurs roamed the earth, people used to have alarm clocks before the phone was invented. So I got one here. I went to amazon.fr and I searched alarm clock and then I sorted price low to high and I bought the first one. So it's probably gonna break in like you know seven seconds. (laughs) Probably. Uh, Yeah, which is great. But that's my usual standard and it, it hasn't, this is, my watch currently being held together by a piece of cloth taken from, what was that? I think a wire of some technological component was, it had that keeping it together. So it's what you get, all right? My whole bajanky life is held together by a string. Um, but, but also there's a conflict in my heart of hearts. On account of the fact that the Philadelphia 76ers are in the NBA playoffs and there's just so much conversation about their, uh, their candidacy on account of the fact that Joel Embiid tore a Are you a Sixers stem. fan? Oh, I'm a huge Sixers fan.
0: Oh, yeah. okay. I like you even more. I did not know that I'm also a Sixers fan. So yeah, this the, pleases uh, me. the Embiid concussion. Terrible. The,
1: yeah, yeah, so concussion, orbital fracture. Also, yeah. James Harden used to be a good basketball player, and now he seems to be less of a good basketball player. Yeah. Is this something that just happens at the age of 32 if you're not LeBron James? Or is this because James James Harden is a party animal who doesn't necessarily play well as a team, or at least he hasn't in the past three years? You know, so like everyone's up in arms, you know, somewhat consoled by the fact that Ben Simmons never touched the basketball court. But I, all, these, <laughs> all these thoughts are just kind of welling up in my heart. And I know that tomorrow morning when I wake up, I'm going to want to check to see what the result of game two was because uh, if they lose two straight, their chances of winning the series are like single digit percentage wise, you know? Yeah. So, so, so tonight's game is huge. It's huge. Um, The question is, what am I going to do tomorrow morning? Because I really would prefer not to look at my phone on account of the fact that I would like to be, you know, one who abides in the freedom of the sons and daughters of God. But I am cognizant of the fact of my slavery that uh, on account of the choices that I've made up until this point in my life. I may I may look at the phone, right? So I've made certain judgments as to what's better and what's worse, but then there's the fact that my appetites come into play, and that's where really the prudence rubber hits the proverbial road um, because it's not just a matter of knowing. It's a matter of enacting. It's a matter of choosing. It's a matter of conducting. It's a matter of living. Uh, so those are different things. Conscience is great within its domain, but it's not everything, which is why I think it's so important in the Christian moral tradition to re-energize this conversation about prudence because it's way more than just knowing the truth i mean plato had that on lock but you know plato came a full 400 years before christ so there you go
0: yeah do you think that um you just mentioned that sort of we need to recover prudence in the christian tradition do you think that in the Catholic tradition especially in the past 50 years where you've emphasized conscience a lot do you think that we should have been also emphasizing prudence because to your point conscience is great but People often say follow your conscience, right? And uh, Catholics frequently say that. For example, mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure if it's in a papal encyclical, but it's it's definitely in the discourse. Follow your conscience. But what it sounds like you're saying is you don't follow your conscience. You actually follow prudence, which sort
1: of, or you fail to form your conscience and then follow it. Or you, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of ways in which that could play out. But I get super frustrated and discouraged when people are like. Yeah. Same sex relationships. I got to follow my conscience. It's like, wait, what? It's like receiving Holy Communion after I've been divorced and remarried, I've got to follow my conscience. It's like, wait, what? Uh, Because conscience isn't just a free floating, um, like moral atomism. You know, like I just make decisions based on the way in which I have blinded myself from the integrity of moral truth. It's like, no, because we need prudence because prudence is the virtue which engages us with the moral reality and shapes us accordingly. And I think you can get some of that with conscience, right? When you talk about informing your conscience or, or simply forming your conscience on the basis of the moral truth to which we have access and in which we grow. Because, I mean, prudence does bind, certainly. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, conscience does bind. Um, but it doesn't, you know, like, what would you say, excuse? So yes. you can only do what you know to be good under the aspect of the good, But your knowledge of that good may be limited. It may be partial and it may be wrong. Um, Whereas when we talk more about prudence, we're talking about a kind of holistic perfection of the human person, which, um, yeah, which we need in order to, yeah, engage with this particular question in an integral way.
0: So a little bit of a departure, perhaps from the, the immediate topic at hand of prudence, but, uh, I was telling some of my friends that I was going to be interviewing, interviewing you in the podcast and you're fairly well known in the sort of American Catholic world, especially those who listen to podcasts. And so I said, you guys have any questions for father pine? And one of them had, I think what was a, what was a, a good question. It was basically, how do we, how do we navigate the challenge of dealing with, um, our own deeply held convictions that spring from Catholic truth. Uh, when our colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, whatever, um, don't share those convictions, and perhaps especially when those those friends or colleagues or family um, are Catholic but still reject those truths, you know, how do we sort of, how do we navigate, um, how do we navigate sharing the truth, remaining steadfast in the truth, being charitable about sharing the truth, uh, while exhorting um, people to fidelity or encouraging people to come to the the fullness of faith within the Catholic church. It's hard to navigate this uh, to, you know, to not perhaps be on a moral high horse. It's it's tough to uh, not be prideful about um, possessing what we claim to be the truth. So so maybe, some, maybe we can apply prudence to it. You know, how, what are some thoughts that you have for how to navigate the dynamics of that particular situation? Because it happens all the time. I mean, faithfulness is in short supply these days and it's very difficult uh, for us to find um, other people who are, uh, who are dedicated to faithfulness?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe let's just. I can just answer that concretely, particularly in my own case, and then we can. Um, yeah, universalize on the basis of that. So let's say that um, I'm doing a habilitation after I finish my doctorate, and I go to the University of Tubingen, and let's say there isn't a Dominican community in the University of Tubingen, or in Tubingen, and that I choose to stay with another religious community. And they have very different understanding as to the church's teaching, or maybe it's not that they differ in their understanding of the church's teaching, they've just chosen to reject it in a variety of ways. Um, So this like becomes very, very urgent for me, how I answer this question. Yeah. And what I would say is, well, I mean like, so there are certain things which the church sets forward as law and those things cannot be compromised on, okay? So I think that we all recognize certain principles at work in our lives on which there is no compromising, okay? uh so like for instance uh there and there's a hierarchy of these things insofar as they pertain more and more essentially or less and less essentially to the kind of heart of the matter whether that be the moral law the natural law or whether that be like liturgical law divine law things of that nature okay so they say if you're going to celebrate the mass here Right then, the, you have to use this missile, which hasn't been given approbation, which changes the words of con- consecration. For me, it's very simple to respond, no. Okay, uh, even if the stakes of that is you can't live with us, fine. It's like you know, thanks for the invitation. Sorry, it didn't work out. All the best. No hard feelings. I mean, thanks for communicating me with me at the outset. Yeah. Um, whereas there might be other things which would cause me discomfort, right? But for which i might not have the same urgency in my response or reaction um like if they were to use a version of the lectionary which was a different biblical translation you know like one that tries to observe the integrity of the text but which isn't the one approved by the the like council of bishops that makes me uncomfortable but it doesn't make me uncomfortable at the same level or to the same degree yeah um uh yeah i mean like all, all different things about liturgical decorum could be brought into that conversation. I just bring it up so as to say that there are like different ways in which we engage with the law based on how essential this thing is or like how much it it touches me or implicates me as an individual. Uh, so like w- with family situations, you often find this when it's it's a matter of going to a a, a wedding, for example. So like a same-sex wedding, you don't go, Okay. Uh, on account of the fact that it's contrary to the natural law in a particular way, right? And it undermines a very, very basic, basic truth of human sexuality, which is to say that it's you know male, male and female, or that's to say that like the covenant of marriage is between a man and a woman. Whereas for instance, let's say that uh, like your family member non-practicing Catholic is marrying um, a Jew, okay? And you're like, cool, cool, did you get dispensation of form? You ask yourself for this marriage at the synagogue. The answer to that is probably no, But let's say that your, you know, like family member hasn't been practicing the faith for seven years and they don't really know it. The question is, do I broach this topic with you? And I think that's a great question. And I think the answer, I'm I'm thinking that the answer is most always yes, unless, right, you think that that conversation would actually precipitate a reaction, which would cause like greater, you know, like misery and woe. And I haven't yet thought about all the details of that particular thing. But my general counsel is, you know, it's worth broaching the question. And then after having broached the question, you now have a way by which to say, hey, uh, I'm, I'm not planning on coming to the, so the, to, the, to the wedding on account of the fact that, yeah, I just, I'm just not comfortable. We already talked about it, no big deal. Is that gonna be potentially catastrophic for your relationship? Yes, uh, it could be, right? So um, that, that type of response would probably be, rank, be ranked by a lot of people as inflexible. Um, But I think this, and and maybe it reflects some of my own peculiarities when it comes to approaching relationships. Um, But um, I'm, I don't know. I just, I don't, I I don't think it's worthwhile to live a lie uh, insofar as we have some vague notion as to a future which could be better if i am like faithful to this relationship because if my being faithful to this relationship entails me compromising on principles in a significant way then what is that fidelity okay Mm -hmm. it's like when you engage in ecumenical things all right i think ecumenical things are worthwhile insofar as everyone can bring their real commitments to the table but oftentimes the way that ecumenism is practiced is it's like all right so what we're going to do is something protestant um so catholics check your privilege it's like yeah like, at what point did that become cool, okay? Like, if we have a mass, then everyone has to receive. It's like, no, okay? It's like, like for instance, like you chose to marry your wife and just because you chose to marry her, that's an exclusive relationship. And it's not hateful to those who cannot participate in your marital covenant. It's just like the logic of human commitment is that it yeah. entails a certain exclusion. It's like, I'm not hating you by virtue. of the f- I'm just saying that I believe that it's this and you don't and we make distinctions and those things are governed by law. So I think that maybe maybe it's on account of the fact that I am celibate and I live a thousand miles away, but I'm a little more comfortable with the frustrations that arise in in the wake of these conversations and then the potential alienation. Um, yeah, just I just don't have a ton of confidence in the slow approach, although I have seen the slow approach work itself out in certain instances. And maybe, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to be too axe-wielding about it because I think I can fall into a certain trope of intolerance, but yeah. Yeah. Those are my confused thoughts. Okay.
0: No, no, that's, that's super helpful. I think in, uh, in general, I agree with you and it's helpful, uh, to be more action oriented than less action oriented. Um, because I would rather, I would rather have done too much than, than to do too little. Um, another question I have for you actually, we'll make this a final question since we're almost out of time, but there's a passage in your book. I don't exactly remember where it is. I want to say it was the, Oh, actually here it is. Chapter eight, page 157. Uh, I did underline it, so it was a little bit easier to find. Um, So you're talking about sort of how, not sort of, you're talking about how to make decisions and how to choose the good, and you say that you are, let me just read, direct quote, bottom of page 157 to 158, you are in search of what is good for you here and now, given the concrete and particular circumstances of your life. It may seem holier to make a holy hour, attend mass, pray the liturgy of the hours, and serve with the missionaries of charity every day. But that mode of life is not holier for a project manager during the busy season or a young parent currently potty training the twins. Um, My wife and I have this discussion on a sort of recurring basis, figuring out what what sort of spiritual disciplines to take on for ourselves because, uh, as the parents of young children, there are a lot of demands on your time and a lot of people who need your time and are relying on you for their own spiritual formation and development. Um, and it's hard sometimes to choose, like, do I go to adoration here? Or this came up in, in Lent, and we, we talked about and tried to choose good sacrifices in Lent that also didn't, you know, detract from our duties as parents and, um, uh, in the Lenten season. So can you say a little bit more about that and sort of how each one um, has his or her role to play um, and and those those roles do not look identical and those roles will dictate then what is good for each person?
1: Yeah, I think that but, um,
0: maybe, maybe I guess to make it more concrete, like how sure. should a in, you know, in approaching a penitential season of Lent, for example, um, uh, how should a young Uh, a young husband and wife who have young children think like, what, what type of sacrifices should I take on for Lent? How should I think about this in the context of my, my vocation and where God has me right now?
1: Yeah. I I think I might just answer the question with respect to the entirety of the Christian life. Like, what do I do in every season of the year? And then maybe we can specify it further for Lent. But like, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that you, like any Christian should pray for 20 minutes a day and that those 20 minutes should be conducted without distraction um, in something approaching silence. And that, you know, maybe a time in which, you know, you say the holy name of Jesus, you read some scripture and meditate on it. Uh, but I don't think it counts to do that like while driving, for instance, like I say my rosary in the car, or I don't think that it counts to like listen to an audiobook of Augustine's Confessions and call that your prayer time, however transcendent that might be. Because while I think that those things might participate something of the character of prayer, if they overflow from a life of prayer, they, they cannot function as a substitute for it. So I think that everyone is called to pray every day for like 20 minutes. That number, I say like 20 minutes, I completely made it up, but it's just based on a variety of conversations with people as to how long it takes to them to get settled, and then how long it takes them to have something of a conversation with God. Yeah. Then when it comes to mass, you're, you know, like we go to mass every Sunday, regardless of whether or not we're in a state where we can receive, that's just bread and butter. But I think that there are cool devotions, which the church proposes and certainly did up until more recently with a, with a greater, what would you say, recognition among the lay faithful, like First Fridays and First Saturdays, for instance, where we, we, for whatever reason, we have in our minds that it's either the minimum or the maximum. Like either I go to Mass on Sunday or I'm a daily communicant. You don't hear about a lot of people who are like, yeah, I bop into daily Mass like a couple of times a week. Or if you do hear about them, I would say that they're rare, but we need to hear those people more. Because whenever we treat the Christian life as if it were like a kind of digital switch, we lose a, yeah, we just lose out on the subtlety and intricacy of the analog options. And I think there are a lot of cool analog options. And I think that this is where you get the, the life tailored to your state. Um, yeah, just a healthy sense of who I am and what what am I drawn to? What can I bear? Uh, what does my life uh, perhaps demand of me? And how can I respect that? Or how can I re- respond to that generously? Um, so I think, uh, yeah, like I was talking to my sister. My sister occasionally gets a babysitter just so she can go to a holy hour in mass, which I think is awesome. Okay, yeah, like that's great. It's super sweet. You know, like, it's not simply a matter of is holy hour in mass worth thirty dollars? Okay, yes. Well, but given the concrete and particular circumstances of your life, maybe that's a more nuanced answer. But it's also like there's the hassle of setting it up, and then there's like you feel like you're placing demands on your babysitter, and sometimes you're not always comfortable with that. So I realize it's a complicated thing. Um, but yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that my, my sisters have managed to cultivate this sense with their families of like the whole, the whole town kind of pitches in and it's not because they're needy. Um, it's, I think because they're mature about it. Um, like, I think, I don't think being a husband or father, uh, or being a wife and mother means being sacrificed in the altar of, yeah, like the unstinting demands of your small children. Yeah. Um, I think it's cool just to like Step out. That's not bad. I think I think because a lot of the way that like the Catholic homeschooling conversation has gone, people who don't want to homeschool their kids like feel guilty. It's like I send my kids to school because I want to. It's like, yeah, ab- <laughs> abide in that choice. Be yeah. therefore free. Yeah. Um, and so I think we need to reclaim some of that freedom of the in-between. Uh, when it comes to friendships, I think that you like your your primary friendship as a married person is with your spouse. Uh, you know, you have this common life, you have this common conversation. I think it's super important to go on dates, not just in so far as you have it described in some of these kind of like boundaries book or self-help books and stuff like that, but in a sense, like this is a friendship, right? We need to be talking about something or we're always going to relapse into what? Like a kind of functionalism or kind of quiet despair, or just like a, a litany of griping. We need to be able to engage each other on themes that, that draw us out and draw us in to the relationship, whether that's you're a nerdy couple and you talk about philosophy and theology, or whether it's like you're a sporty couple and you talk about what the prospects of the Philadelphia 76ers in the second round of the Eastern conference Not looking playoffs. Oh you my know? Not Not gosh, please God. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, th- I probably already talked enough to get a, give a decent sense of what I think no, about that. Yeah, this but, is super helpful. That's exactly what I was looking for. That's, this is some yeah. really helpful, um,
0: ways of thinking of the problem. Um, great. That's, uh, that's wonderful. Um, let's pray for the Sixers tonight that they'll, yes. uh, that they'll be victorious.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. Amen. Hallelujah.
0: <laughs> Father Gregory, thanks for joining me today. Where can people follow more
1: of your work? Yeah. Where can people follow more stuff? Um, God's planning is an obvious one. Uh, yeah, yeah, one of so the best podcasts out there. Let's go. So God's planning, uh, check out godsplanning.org for, uh, information on the retreats that we're having this summer in June or July and August to which you are almost cordially invited. And then, um, Yeah, pints, people know pints. And then the book, books available where books are sold. I would also say, yeah, the thing that you can do for me or help me if you can, is pray for me. Um, Writing a dissertation is, yeah, it's, I I mentioned it previously, it's like lonely, sad, and anxious. And, uh, you know, I'm advancing in the work, but I miss America, I miss my family, my friends and stuff, even though there are many beautiful relationships here for which I'm very grateful. But yeah, yeah, I just pray that, Le travail avance. So I'd be grateful. <laughs> I'm not a French speaker. What is that? <laughs> that? That the work advances.
0: Ah, okay. Good. We will pray. Uh, and, and for my listeners, I'm going to put the sh- in the show notes links to uh, the TechWise family that Father Gregory mentioned, as well as uh, the, his Prudence book, obviously, and his other books, and God's Planning and Pint. So go ahead, uh, head there and uh, take a listen, take a read, all that good stuff. Father Gregory, thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure. I would love to have you on again soon, and um, hopefully we'll see some victory with the Sixers tonight. Are you a fan of other Philly teams or just the Sixers?
1: I basically just follow the Sixers and the Eagles. Um, Oh, you're an Eagles fan too. Oh, my
0: goodness. So, yeah. yeah. All right. We need to to talk this fall then. It's good drafts. Yeah, good things are happening in Philly. We're heading in the right direction, I think, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Father, thanks so much for joining. To my listeners, thanks again for watching another episode. Until next time. God bless you.